All right, Three Crosses Church, how are you guys doing this morning? All right, awesome. Well, it is a joy to be with you guys. Um, I hope you had a great conversation with your neighbor about the Bible. That's our topic for today. Why should I trust the Bible? So can you guys do something for me? Whether you brought one from home or if you need to reach in that book rack in front of you, can you guys grab your Bibles and hold them up in the air loud and proud? Awesome. Some of you guys might have to share. That's okay. I want to make sure everyone's got their hands on these in this room. Okay, good. You can put it in your lap. Keep it close. Keep it in your hands. You know, I've been loving this Explore God series. Not only are we trying to cement what we believe about this book, but we've been exploring our outside these walls, our, Christ, our non-Christian neighbors, our friends, our family. What do they believe about the Bible? And there was an interesting study done by Barna on the state of the Bible. They surveyed a bunch of non-Christians. And did you know that non-Christians are willing to take a step and suggest that something in this book is going on. Whether you want to call it divine influence or God's power, something in this book is mysterious. That was the majority of non-Christians. What's interesting is why aren't there more people that actually live by this book, right? I think the answer to that question is found in the minority opinion, which is oftentimes the loudest. The minority opinion takes the conversation from the divine influence of this book and they shift their attention to the human influence of the book. And when we start talking about the human origin story of how we got this very book, a lot of questions emerge. This is in fact a copy of an ancient document. This book is old, guys. It's old. And as society has progressed... I look back at its teachings and its ethics, and guess what? It seems like they're irrelevant. They're hateful. They're toxic in some spaces. You know, the prevailing narrative of our culture of how we got this book is one where a bunch of men stood in a back room at one council, and they said, hmm, a lot of people actually believe in this book. Can we make it say what we want it to say so that we can have power over people? Can we tweak this one word? Can we get rid of this book entirely and keep this set that we have called the Bible? And so as we talk about the human influence, the human story of how we receive this book, it leads to a lot of questions and it leads to our question today. Why should I or anyone trust this ancient document we call the Bible? I wonder if anybody has asked you that question. Maybe you feel a little bit powerless to answer it. Maybe you might hesitate and say, I don't know, it's just God's word. That's what I was taught, so you should believe it too. To which a skeptic would say, hold on, that's exactly the power narrative. Who made you the authority of what I believe? Or maybe you might just say, oh, well, I remember this in Sunday school. Let's flip to 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17, which says, and the skeptic would say, hold on, I don't trust the Bible And now you're telling me to trust the Bible based on what the Bible says? That's circular logic. And I guess the the response that I fear the most as I was preparing this is maybe some of us are ready to jump into the divine influence of this book, but maybe we haven't thought too deeply about the history of it or the human influence on it. 
I know history gets a little messy, and there's this phrase going around that the victors of history get to tell the tale. So maybe there is something about this history, and that's the open door the skeptic needs to, to throw out this key statistic that gets thrown around a lot in this conversation. You guys ready for it? I don't know. You guys ready for it? Are you guys excited? Okay. There are 500,000 variants in your New Testament alone. Up to 500, half a million variants in the New Testament alone. The New Testament only has 130,000 words. So for every word of the New Testament, there are four variants. Uh Uh-oh. All of a sudden, our faith gets a little shaky. And all of a sudden, everything we talk about in this book gets a little shaky. I love what one of my professors said. If our knowledge of God and the ways of Jesus are built on the foundations of the Bible, then all the arguments, all the criticisms against God and Christianity and Jesus, everything we're going to talk about in this series will eventually revert back to the credibility of that book in your lap. And so, I know we're used to some of us coming up here and say, open your Bibles to this passage. I don't want to do that just quite yet because I don't want to make any theological claims. But what I want you to do, I want you to hold that Bible in your hands. Keep it in your laps. Feel the human pages. Feel the binding of the book. Because I want to treat this for a second like any other ancient human document. And with any other ancient human document, what we do is we look at it to see, okay, who is involved? What is the claim on its own human influence? What is the story of how we got this Bible? And what I want to show you is that there is powerful evidence that this book right here can, in fact, be trusted. So, if you have any questions, this is a really detailed conversation uh, feel free to visit our website, threecrosses.church slash explore God. You'll see it on the screen. Uh, we've created a space where you can submit your own specific questions. We'll have a conversation on Wednesday night. You guys are all invited. Hopefully it's this crowded. Um, but we also have on your notes a whole bunch of resources that I went through that I found very helpful for this conversation. And you'll notice in your notes, I've given you guys a timeline. And the reason I want to give you a timeline is because if we're going to trace the human origin story of how we got this book, we're going to have to talk about ancient history. Ancient history. I know our favorite topic in school, right? Ancient history. Now, here's the thing I want to say about ancient history up front. You guys ready? This is going to blow your mind. I know. You weren't there, right? You weren't there. And if time travel doesn't get invented, which I don't think it will, we will never be at an historical event. Can we all agree on that? So, so often we approach this conversation and I want to see Mark's hand literally write his gospel. That's not the kind of evidence we're talking about. We're talking about what's called historical evidence. And the reason I love this is I get excited because we get to start talking about these people. On the screen, how many of you guys watch... Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. (laughs) CSI shows. How many of you guys like CSI shows or CSI-related shows? Okay, I love these guys because they're essentially trying to do the same thing we're trying to do here today. They take some sort of event that's happened in the past, and they're doing their very best, because they weren't there, to figure out what happened. So let's learn something from these guys. How do they do it? 
Well, first, if you watch the show, they always arrive at the scene and they pull out that yellow notepad and they start writing who are the people that are involved. Simple question, who is involved? They then, as they take notes and start talking to these people, they document, okay, how could this possibly have happened? How did this all shake down? What are the claims that are being made? And then finally, they discover the physical evidence, the fingerprint that's going to lead to that receipt, that's going to lead to that one store, and it finds the perpetrator magically, right? So they take the who, the how, and the what, they present it in front of a court, and thankfully, the court doesn't come to a conclusion with 100% certainty, right? Because then the court would have to be at every single crime scene and no justice would ever be served. Instead, the court comes to a conclusion that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Can you guys say that with me? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so church, we are going to travel to scenes that happened thousands of years ago and see if we can find some evidence, investigate what's going on, and see if we can come to a conclusion that's beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's start with the first 39 books of that ancient document in your hands called the Old Testament. We receive them as the first five books, the Law, um, the Pentateuch, the books of history, the books of prophets, the books of writings, and we arrive at the scene, you can see on your timeline, it spans over about a thousand years. I simply want to ask our first investigatory question, who crafted the text? So let's start with the first five books of the Bible. Who crafted the first five books of the Bible? Church trivia time. Here we go. Moses. Great job. I'll show you this. This is the human influence on the Bible. Exodus. There are two spots where Moses is told to write something. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. That's the second time. But here's the thing about CSI shows. It's not always as simple as it first looks. Because if Moses, in fact, wrote the first five books of the Bible, we're going to have to deal with some interesting passages. One that comes to mind is Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy is the last book of the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 34, specifically, is the very end And what we learn in Deuteronomy 34 is that Moses is dead. So who is writing Deuteronomy 34? Either Moses is writing about his death before he's died, or something else is happening. So I want to read you a passage from Deuteronomy 34. I want you to imagine if Moses actually wrote these words. What does this say about his character? Okay, ready? Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 to 12, emphasis by A.J. added. Ready? Since then... No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for no one has ever shown the mighty power performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. (laughs) Okay, either Moses is that interesting person that refers to himself in the third person all the time as like a humble brag, or something else is happening. And what is likely happening is somebody further along in history is looking at the events of Moses and saying, man, We have never seen anybody like this Moses character. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because this person, further along in history, felt he had the power to come to the end of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 34 and insert this beautiful note that suggests we're looking for this greater Moses. And Christians are like, yes, I know where this is going. 
But to the skeptic, we've just opened up the floodgates, haven't we? Because if this person can come in and add something to Deuteronomy 34, why can't he add something to Genesis 1? Why can't he take something away from Leviticus? Why can't he tweak something in the book of Numbers to make it say what he wants? Here's the interesting fact. The Old Testament is very comfortable with the presence of people that are called scribes. And our investigatory work on who crafted the text is incomplete if we don't call out that there are people called scribes that helped craft the text. The interesting thing about scribes is in the Old Testament, we don't know much about them. Uh, They're found in temple work as we find more and more uh, scrolls in temple spaces. They get referred to as king's secretaries. If you remember in Deuteronomy 17, the king is called to write down the law, so he probably delegated that responsibility. Uh, For example, they take back seats a lot. How many of you guys have heard sermons on Elihoref or Ahijah? Didn't think so, okay? Because these are scribes in 1 Kings chapter 4. How about Baruch, son of Neriah? Anybody? Okay, maybe. But that's okay. Baruch, son of Neriah, writes at the dictation of Jeremiah. I'll give you an easier one. How about Ezra? You guys heard of the man of Ezra? He is one of the most prominent scribes of the Old Testament. And there's a lot of tradition that follows him, so we'll talk about him a little bit later. But the key point is that the Old Testament isn't afraid of saying, hey, there are scribes out there that are helping craft the text. That's just how ancient documents were made. For example, let me give you the book of Psalms. Who do you think of when you think of the book of Psalms? Everybody shout it out if you know it. David. Awesome. Okay. There are 150 Psalms. David only has 75 Psalms. Half of them. Which begs the question, who has the other half? What's going on? In fact, there are 48 anonymous Psalms. We have one Psalm that stretches all the way back to Moses. We have one Psalm that stretches all the way forward to Ethan the Ezraite. We have the Psalm of Solomon, Psalm of Asaph, Korah, all these different Psalms. And so what's likely happening is that somebody, like a scribe, maybe an Ezra type, is coming in, collecting the documents across Israel's entire history, putting them into one book, which is, consists of multiple books, so book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, and it's this beautiful up and down journey that culminates at Psalm 150. It's praise God with everything. And so in a very similar way, we probably have scribes that are doing that with the entire Old Testament, that are saying, okay, here's the text that we want to preserve, and how can we string it together that culminates at that Messiah that we've all been looking for. The Old Testament is very comfortable. The question then becomes, can we trust these people? How did it all happen? That leads to our second investigatory question. How did copyists treat the text? How did copyists treat the text? Because right now we have two competing claims. The one claim of the church is that these scribes did faithful work. They took the source material, and all they did was help craft it together. The other competing claim is that these scribes were nefarious. They had powerful ulterior motives in mind. Which one is true, and how can we tell? Well, I want to show you a bit of evidence on the screen. You'll see what are called the Masoretic Texts. And on your timeline, you can see that they appear to us in the 9th to 11th century, 
And they're written by scribes from the tradition called the Masoretes, which makes sense because of the name. But these are important because these are our first full collection of the Old Testament written in the Hebrew language. But as we're discovering how this all shook down, the motivations, what's really cool about the Masoretes is that they document their scribal practices, which is really awesome because these scribal practices, they suggest, date all the way back to people like Ezra and following. And so the question is, what kind of regulations did these scribes had have? Were they taking this seriously? You tell me. This is a quote that I had to condense, but I'll end it with the quote. It's from the Jewish Talmud, which is like a tradition book for Jews. Um, and here are the regulations that are imposed on these scribes. The skins that they wrote on had to be from the correct animal. The strings that they used to tie it together had to be, again, from the correct animal. The length of the paragraph, the lines, the spacing in between the letters had to be according to regulation. The ink had a specific formula. Yes, they cared about what ink they're using. They had to come in the appropriate dress. They could never document something from memory. Like, oh, I know that word. I'm going to write it and fill it out. They had to go digit by digit. And as they did, they calculated the middle digit so that the next copyist could tell if they were actually accurate. And then finally, when they're writing the name of God down, and even somebody as authoritative as a king walks in, they couldn't take their name off or their eyes off the name of God. And so the quote ends like this. The roles in which these regulations are not observed are condemned to be buried in the ground or burned, or they're banished to the schools to be using, used as reading books. You guys, does this sound like a people that are pulling power moves on the text at will? Or does this sound like a people that have preservation in mind, that have details in mind? And so you might think, okay, well, that's nice to claim about yourself. How do we know that they accomplished this task? And this leads to our third investigatory claim. What corruptions exist in the text? If any, what corruptions exist? I'd like to introduce you to one of the greatest biblical archaeological finds known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. On the screen, you'll see some images of it. One of the great finds of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that we found the entire book of Isaiah intact from, you can see on your timeline, the 2nd century BC anywhere to the 1st century AD. Remarkable. And these are definitely fragments. So at the bottom one, that's a fragment of Ecclesiastes. And at the top right, they're making commentaries on the Bible. That's a commentary on Hezekiah. Overall, 900 of these manuscripts have been found. 210 give us the entire Old Testament with the exception of the book of Esther. What's amazing about this is that the Dead Sea Scrolls take us even closer to the original Old Testament. And now we get to see if the Masoretes were successful because we have one from the 9th and 11th century and another really early on. If they were being accurate, I bet you these things would line up. Do they? I'm glad I asked that rhetorical question because... It is remarkable how much they line up. Let me give you some examples. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 18, over a thousand year span. Think of that, a thousand years. Can't even fathom it. One spelling error. One. 
Isaiah 6 is another one. 37 different variants get called out, but as we'll soon learn, there were mistakes of the pen, right? Slips of this or smudge of sweat that dripped, and they can't tell what the word is. Three of them, make them in your Bible as important. Here are the differences. They were calling instead of one call to another. Holy, holy, two times, versus holy, 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 three times. You could see how you'd miss one, especially if you're writing a long time. Sins, plural, for sin, singular. I love what Neil Lightfoot says at the conclusion of this argument. It should therefore be stated explicitly that when we survey the Hebrew Bible as a whole, the incidence of copyist errors is statistically very few indeed. Even allowing for the intrusion of occasional errors in the received Hebrew text, it is remarkable how faithfully it was transmitted. It is remarkable how faithfully it was transmitted. Are there slight variants? Yeah, but that's okay because it's a human story. And guess what? If you're still stuck up on the variants, we have things called Bible nerds here at the church. And they have gone through each and every one of these variants, including the different translations, the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and they're able to call it out in works like this, the Biblia Hebraica Quinta. What you're seeing is probably what's in the original Old Testament in Hebrew, and all those bottom words are variants. And guess what? Wherever there is a variant, we have it called out. Isn't that fascinating? We have them called out. And so you, as a church member, you can go to the bank that the evidence shows beyond a reasonable doubt that the 39 books of the Old Testament are trustworthy. And not only are they trustworthy, I think they're beautiful, aren't they? Isn't it pretty awesome? Okay. We got our CSI muscles all warmed up, okay? We got one more investigation to do. The New Testament, the final 27 books in your Bible. The four gospel accounts, the book of Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, the book of Hebrews, seven letters, and the book of Revelation. And we arrive at the scene, and most scholars at worst put this at 90 AD, but at best, since they don't really mention one of the biggest events of the time, which was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we're talking about 40 to 60 AD, oh so close to the events of one Jesus of Nazareth. And so, our first investigatory question is who crafted the text? Well, in the case of the Gospels, we have pretty good evidence to suggest that Matthew and John were probably disciples who walked alongside Jesus, eyewitnesses, one of the strongest testimonies in court. But then we get to guys like Mark and Luke, and we realize that these are not people who walked directly with Jesus. They were probably associates with Peter and Paul. But the New Testament, again, is not afraid that people are coming in to help craft the text. I love the case of Luke, the historian. Uh, the Gospel of Luke just says it straight out. Here are my intentions right from the beginning. It says, I myself, Luke talking, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. There it is. He's claiming that what he wants to do is be accurate. He's not trying to tweak evidence. He wants to be accurate. So, okay, Luke, you want to be accurate? Let's see what your other writings have to say. 
And so one study went to the book of Acts, right? Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And he joins Paul in Acts 16. And one scholar said, okay, if you want to be accurate, how accurate were you when you were documenting your travels with Paul? And what they found were 84 different verifiable facts through archaeology and other sciences by the author Luke. I'm talking about like weather patterns and travel patterns of the day, all these minor details. And if he can do that for Acts, why can't he do that for Luke? And oh yeah, they did the same study for John, and they found 56 different verifiable facts. 30 different people are mentioned in the New Testament that have already been archaeologically verified to have existed right when the time the authors are writing it. And so yes, there could have been scribes Paul in the book of Romans says, hey, I, Tertius, wrote the book of Romans. Uh, Peter, who's probably an illiterate fisherman, he says that Silas came in and helped him. But the claim that these guys are trying to make stuff up to, to tweak ideas is just not true. They're doing their best to be as accurate as possible. But the question comes with the copies. Because these original manuscripts have been lost to history, how can we trust the copies. How did the copyists treat the text? That's our second investigatory question. Let me show you some more evidence. Okay, number five on your timeline is the majuscules. The majuscules. On the screen, you'll see three really important ones. Codex Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus. And these are important because they're our first collection of the entire New Testament in one spot. And I wrote majuscules in all capitals. You might be wondering, how do they date these things? Well, it's because they look at these documents and realize that, hey, these are written in all capital letters. And this was a time that they were writing in all capital letters. And so they can pinpoint to the 4th and 5th century AD. So the question is, can we trust them? Did they have good motives in mind? And I love what uh, Mead and Gurry in their book, Scribes and Scriptures, write about these scribes. It talks about some of the tradition that led to documents like that. They say, failing to copy the spelling, accenting, and punctuation accurately led to penalties. Reading something other than what was in the book being copied meant eating dried food. Breaking one's pen in a fit of anger, can you imagine that? Writing so many times that you break your pen in a fit of anger, would cost 30 genuflections. You guys, does this sound like a people that are trying to be meticulous with every detail, or that can pull power moves. Which one? Okay, final piece of evidence. What corruptions might exist in the text? You can claim that, but where is the proof? And this is where I want to show you guys another bit of evidence. The last one I'll show you, the papyri. Papyri. See, as we've been exploring, we've been discovering earlier and earlier documents. It's nothing short of beautiful. Out of these papyri, which is just the, the text of material that they're writing on, uh, 5,600 different New Testament papyri have been found, of which 100 of them get us to the 2nd and 3rd century AD, getting us closer and closer to the original text. The surviving papyri cover all of the New Testament with the exception of 1st and 2nd Timothy. On the screen, you'll see top left portions of Matthew and P1, uh, Paul's letters, a collection of them in P45 and 46, which is fascinating because Paul's letters scattered all over the place. So to have a collection is fascinating. Uh, P47 at the very top, one third of the book of Revelation is found in that discovery. 
Uh, P-52, I want to show you guys that one in particular, the one that looks like Ohio a little bit. Um, it is probably the size of your iPhone, but it's our oldest discovery, and it has portions of John 18 in it. And it's dated anywhere from 140 A.D. all the way as early, some people believe, as 95 A.D. It's awesome. P-75, the last one. We have full attestation of John and Luke in the second and third century. And so the question is, what about all those variants we talked about earlier? That 500,000 variant statistic. Well, let me answer it in a couple of different ways. This isn't the only book being written during that time. There are a lot of historians that wrote Plato, Tacitus, Caesar, Herodotus, Homer, all wrote during that time as well. And for them, their original manuscripts were lost as well, so they have copies, and they maybe have 10 maybe low hundred amount of copies, and they're separated high hundreds to thousands of years away. You guys, the New Testament, we've been talking about how close they are to the originals. We're dealing with a staggering 24,000 different manuscripts, including all the translations, 24,000. This makes this book the most well-attested book in ancient civilization, 24,000. And with all those different manuscripts, you would expect that there would be more variants, especially if we're counting every single spelling error that exists in all of those 24,000. Scholars have suggested that up to 98 to 99% of these mistakes or corruptions that you think they're out there have nothing to do with the core ideology of the Bible. Don't believe me, that seems too convenient. Believe one of the heaviest skeptics in this conversation, Bart Ehrman. Most of the changes found in our early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort of another. Bart Ehrman from his book, Misquoting Jesus. But you might be asking, okay, You've left me with 1%. That's enough to leave me skeptical. What do we do with that 1%? What do we do with the ending of Mark? What do we do with John 7? What do we do with 1 John 5, verse 7? Guys, we have those variants called out. We have a bunch of Bible nerds who have done the work and produced scholarship that looks like this. This is what's called the Nestle Alon text. And to a high degree of certainty, this is probably the Greek original language that was in the New Testament. And all those variants, all these 24,000 different copies, we have them called out. And I know you can't read it because it's really tiny, but there's a way to read that, I promise you. We have them called out. One of the examples given in the books is the book of Jude. Jude, a very small book, 25 verses, 461 words. 560 different Greek manuscripts of the book of Jude alone. There are 1,700 variants. And if you do the math, 1,700 variants, 460 words, that's about the same ratio you see, about four to one. The majority of these are typos or mistakes. 145 make it into scholarly works that look what you just saw. How many of them make it, are important enough to make it into your English standard version? One. One. Whether in verse 5 you use Jesus or do you use the Lord? You see, the evidence suggests 
That beyond a reasonable doubt, again, not 100% certainty, beyond a reasonable doubt that your New Testament is trustworthy. Your New Testament is trustworthy. You guys, this book that you've been holding in your hands is nothing short of a miracle, is it not? I can't think of anything better to do than to close our time by actually opening this book. Would you guys agree? <laughs> Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 together. Second Timothy three, chapters four, or verses fourteen to seventeen. This is Paul speaking to his disciple Timothy, and I want to break it down into two parts. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, if you're here and you're investigating who the Bible is about, you will find that you will be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, for the case of the New Testament, this document that's so well attested, it's so well attested in history that one historian collected all of the works of history of the first century and came down with some minimal facts that we all agree upon. Here are the minimal facts. Jesus probably died of a Roman crucifixion. That's probably true. He was buried in a private tomb, and that tomb was claimed to be empty. The disciples had an experience of this risen Jesus. The disciples went from a mourning life to a life that was radically transformed. There were resurrection claims that happened early in the church. Uh, preaching of the gospel began in Jerusalem. Sunday became the day of gathering for the early church. And James and Paul went from skepticism to on-fire Christians. You see, all historians agree that this is probably true because there is so much attestation for it. Yet... They won't believe in two more key details that are found in this book. One, that Jesus is Lord. Two, that he resurrected from the grave. But why? It seems like the evidence is all pointing to that. If the Bible is trustworthy, then we have to take these claims seriously, don't we? The disciples had nothing to gain and everything to lose by making these two claims. In fact, they went to their death for it, and they never recanted. There were people who were eyewitnesses there that could have corrected it easily, and yet nobody has been able to explain the empty tomb since that day. If you're a non-Christian in this room, hear this. If this Bible is trustworthy, could it be that these two claims are trustworthy too? That Jesus is Lord, and that he did actually rise from the grave. And if Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. It changes all this conversation because it explains the second part of this Second Timothy passage. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You might be asking, well, what scripture? And I would say all of it because Jesus was an Old Testament nerd. 
right? He loved his Old Testament. He refers to Noah in the flood, Matthew 24. Moses in the Exodus, John 6. Jonah in the fish, Matthew 12. Works of Elijah, Luke 4. Prophecy of Daniel, every time he calls himself the son of man. David in the Psalms in Matthew 22. The very first martyr in Genesis 4 named Abel, all the way to the very last martyr of the Old Testament named Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24. That's found in Luke 11. And here's Jesus' words about this book. You ready? John 5 says this. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, you investigate how the Bible was crafted and and what were the motivations behind it, and you'll discover eternal life, not as you come to this book, but as you meet the resurrected Jesus through the pages of this book, and you come and follow him. You see, this book is a story about power, just not the power that many people think. You could revisit this idea that a bunch of men made power moves on the text so that they could control their people. But what you'll find when you investigate the text is that there is a transcendent power behind this book, and he loves you. You can revisit the old ethics of this book and claim they're old and outdated, but these are the same ethics that are powerfully convicting a lot of us in this room today. It convicts. And you can say that, okay, maybe it's toxic in our day and age, but this story that's found in here about Jesus is one of love. One that says Jesus died for your sins. Jesus resurrected from the grave and he rose to new life so that you might also have new life. You see, investigate what the Bible says and you will discover the power of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the what? The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so we've come to the end of our historical evidence. But every time, we're not there. Because there's one last step. We have to take a step called faith. And if everything is trustworthy in here, it is not a blind leap of faith. We can have confidence that what they wrote down about this Jesus is, in fact, trustworthy and true. And so will you take that step of faith today if you haven't done so already? And Christian, I hope that this strengthens your witness to people who ask you, why should I trust the Bible? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this miracle that we call the Bible. What a book it is. There's so many details around this and Lord, uh, you've given us this time and space to talk about just the incredible journey that your hand has guided through and through. Lord, we pray that we would uh, read the scriptures, not for the scriptures themselves, but to meet with you through the story of your son. God, I pray for anybody in this room that has this question, why should I trust the Bible? That some of this evidence might lead them to a position where we can have further conversations about why you should trust this Bible. And Father, as we open this text, as we go on through this series, may we open it in a new sense of awe and wonder. Heavenly Father, we pray for this time of worship, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.